Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Buzz Killers, it's the old professor here. You know, we really pride ourselves here at the Institute on the quality of our audio, especially since, you know, we don't have a massive budget, even though we pretend we do. We don't have massive teams of sound engineers, even though we pretend we do. And it's just me doing the editing and all that sort of stuff. The first 12 minutes of this episode, I made a big, big mistake. I forgot to push record on the mixing board where we record my part of these interviews. And so for the first 12 minutes, again, we'll have to, we'll have to make do with the Zoom audio that was from my interview with Dr. Ballou. It's not very good. I thought of, we, we tried to re-record it. I tried to sort of record my questions and, and stuff again, but it sounded even more artificial and lame. So it's going to sound like I'm talking in a tin can for the first 12 minutes. I hope you will forgive me, but it does improve dramatically after the first 12 minutes. And anyway, it's Dr. Kathleen Blue who's the big star of this episode. So listen to what she's saying and try to ignore my crappy sound. Get in touch with me, complain about this, hate mail at professorbuzzkill.com. But now, on to the show. Killers, it's me, it's Professor Buzzkill, and we are coming up on the final and I hope crowning episode of our examination of this important new book, Myth America, that came out in January and that has been flying off the shelves. It's a New York Times bestseller. We've interviewed five professors who've written chapters in the book, and now we're interviewing a sixth, Dr. Kathleen Ballou, who wrote perhaps the most interesting and to me anyway disturbing chapter in the book called insurrection professor Ballou, thanks so much for coming on the show thank you for having me i the reason i say this is so interesting and yet disturbing is because you address the, the issue of insurrection not only throughout american history but especially look at these insurrections from the right uh, in the last few decades last several decades i should say and address you know, these awfully big myths about them. And whenever I'm sort of out in the regular world, the real world, in quotation marks, you know, you hear all the time that these sorts of things, January 6th, uh, Oklahoma City, on and on and on, these are not who we are as Americans. And that, especially after January 6th, you know, that got very, very tiring because, of course, academics know that that's not true. And then there's another thing that sort of feeds into that it's not who we are myth and that is it's only lone wolves it's only the occasional nut job that does this and you have done a comprehensive job of destroying those myths and showing how these things are organized and how they are who we are or at least part of who we are so i'm sorry i'm going on at such length because i am so excited as a historian about this chapter can you tell us first 
when you were approached to contribute to the book, did they ask you to do insurrection or did you say, I want to do insurrection? Well, I believe we started working on this before January 6th. So I think yeah. that the insurrection title and the insurrection sort of frame for the essay actually came after the bulk of the essay. And what I wanted to do was sort of bridge between the history I tell in my first book, Bring the War Home, um, which is older now, it came out in 2018, which gives the history of many of these ideas, like the idea of the lone wolf, the idea of leaderless resistance, the idea of the Oklahoma City bombing not as the act of a few errant madmen, but actually as part of this practice of leaderless resistance masked by the idea of the lone wolf that we have a much longer history of. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about that in a minute. And what I wanted to do in this piece was look at sort of the in some ways, much more complicated interplay between the white power movement, which is extremist and revolutionary and small and the mainstream of the GOP. One very weird thing for me as I've written this work, um, I started my research in 2005, is the sort of relentless march of these ideas and activists from the decidedly isolated main uh, fringe of our society into the political mainstream. So part of what I'm doing in the essay is sort of tracing their entry into mainstream politics. I didn't know that we would have such a stunning and staggering example of it as we did on January 6th, but I think that it is sort of the cumulative piece of that story. We should remind buzzkillers who don't know, uh, and also we have a lot of non-American listeners, that GOP means the Republican Party and it is remarkable how much the white power movement has influenced, and to some, some people argue, experts, by the way, sociologists, political scientists, not just political hacks, have, have infiltrated parts of the Republican Party. Yeah. And at this point, this is no longer a matter of politics. Mm -hmm. This is simply a matter of observ observable fact. So in the piece, I sort of trace this arc of involvement from the moment when Klansmen and neo-Nazis and others marched in Charlottesville with the Unite the Right slogans and the Jews will not replace us slogans, the Tiki Torch March, you may remember. And at that point, we got kind of the lukewarm disavowal from a lot of the, the Republican Party and the, the infamous fine people on both sides soundbite from former President Trump, which is, of course, a truncated quote. We can talk about why that's a complicated example, but still mm -hmm. there was a degree of condemnation. And then as we trace the story forward, we see really a flagging effort to condemn this kind of political violence and then an outright embrace. So we can go to, for instance, the El Paso shooting of Latinx people at the Walmart grocery store there, which was carried out by a white power gunman. And there was actually a talking points memo circulated saying, direct the conversation, Republicans, away from white power and towards mental illness. Yeah. And then after that, we've seen an even more open embrace of all of this, not even counting January 6th, but we can think about the call out to the Proud Boys during the second presidential debate. The events of January 6th are, of course, that kind of culminating moment. But even afterward, the appearance of Proud Boys at school board races, at library story hours and in the mainstream security apparatuses of the GOP itself. So this is this is a, a sort of surging tide rather than a simple one point crossover. Oh, absolutely. So let's, if you don't mind, let's let's, and by let's, I mean you, because you're the expert, take apart this lone wolf myth to begin with, because it's, uh, it's completely untrue, but yet it's very, very hardy, very strong. People believe it. Absolutely. So when I say the white power movement, what I'm talking about is a coalition of 
white supremacist, openly racist, and extremist groups that came together in the late 1970s around a shared story about being wronged in the Vietnam War. And these groups included Klansmen, neo-Nazis, later on skinheads and militiamen. They also included radical tax resistors, proponents of Christian identity and other white supremacist theological belief. And this was a small group of people, but in every way quite diverse except race. So it's across the region. It's rural, urban, and suburban. It is men, women, and children. It is people across social class. And the movement came together and almost immediately, just a few years after coalescing, declared war against the federal government and implemented a range of responses and tactics to sort of make possible a war against this gigantic super state, the United States. And one of these strategies was leaderless resistance. Mm -hmm. Now, leaderless resistance, we know today as simply cell-style terrorism. We're all quite familiar with that idea after 9-11. But at the time, this was not a well-known strategy. It was relatively new. Um, well, and well, I'm the not idea so sure for that our our, yeah. our listeners are gonna are gonna know what that means. Uh, I mean, we, the, everyone's heard of sure. terrorist cells and everything, but maybe if you explained leaderless resistance and the cell the concept at a little more basic level, that would be that would be helpful. So basically, the idea for white power cells was that one or a few activists could create a cell and then act in common cause, but without direct communication with other cells and without direct communication with leaders of the movement. So very crucially, there are leaders in leaderless resistance. It's just that there are not ties to them from the sort of ground level violent action of the cells. So the idea is a bunch of cells spread out across the country, coordinated in common cause to attack infrastructure, target populations of color, create acts of sabotage, and eventually overthrow the United States government is the, is the game plan. Now, the reason that they wanted leaderless resistance as a strategy is that during the civil rights movement, federal agents had been incredibly good at infiltrating Klan groups and creating big, expensive legal problems based on that infiltration. The other obvious reason for the strategy was to make it really hard to prosecute people in a court of law. If you can't prove that the leader is attached to the cell, you can only ever get foot soldiers. You can't get the general. But there's been a bigger and much more catastrophic result of leaderless resistance. And that is that we as a society have slipped into a misunderstanding in which acts of organized white power violence appear to us as isolated incidents. Mm -hmm. So in the recent past, it looks like this. It looks like the shooting in Buffalo in the grocery store was an act of anti-Black violence. The shooting in El Paso was an act of anti-Latinx violence. The Tree of Life synagogue shooting was anti-Semitic violence. The Christchurch shooting was anti-Islamic and anti-immigrant violence. The Charleston AME Bible study shooting was anti-Black violence. Now, that's all true. All of those things did happen. And each of those kinds of violence has their own specific meaning in history. But those were all white power gunmen who share ideology, who share, in some cases, social ties, who share formative texts, and even who cut and paste each other's manifestos. This is all part of a movement. And if we understand it as connected, there's a much wider array of public response that we might undertake to stop this kind of violence. Is this model the reason why we can't point to the leader of the Aryan party in the United States? There is not one person we can latch on to and say, that's the leader of that party. And that's who we can all attract our 
disdain for and and work against is that that in an odd way sort of helps strengthen the white power movement because you know it's too it's too amorphous it's too you can't attack people you don't know there is no hitler there is exactly. no fuhrer Exactly. And it also lets this movement do some other things that have worked very well for it over the kind of long 20th century, including being opportunistic, which is to say shifting to take advantage of the open cultural window, we might say. Mm -hmm. It also lets the movement avoid prosecution by kind of sliding sideways out of the, the spotlight when there is public resistance. So another example of the problem of the lone wolf idea is that even if you are a dedicated opponent of a group like the Proud Boys, and you've subscribed to a Google alert for every story about the Proud Boys, of which there are a lot every day, as you may know, even if you read all that news and follow all of those Proud Boys trials, you're still only seeing a little sliver of this broader tapestry of white power activity. Even if you read about all of the public facing stuff, which I think would be near impossible given the volume, you're still only seeing the above ground part of what's happening. So what it's done is focus us overly on the specifics of which group does this and exactly how many Proud Boys versus how many Oath Keepers, which insignia goes to which one, who has a stronghold near my house. There are reasons we ask these questions, but it makes us miss the groundswell. And what we're talking about is an incredibly active uh, movement in the midst of a major surge. How has then white power become so powerful because if, if you know it's a, a cell ty type system leaderless resistance uh, these concentric circles that you talk about in the book i mean hell they the, the aryan group meets every year in in upstate Idaho, I think, something like that. They did in the 80s, and, and that one is now defunct. But we should assume that there are other groups like that meeting somewhere else um, in much the same way. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, I was intrigued by a number of things about the organization in your book, and I don't, I don't want to give away too much of the plot here because we want buzzkillers to get the book, and, and I particularly want them to read your chapter because it's one of the most important related to what's going on now. You talk about... Well, first of all, there's this lone wolf idea. There's this lone male gunman nutcase model. It seems like a very male thing. You see all the guys in camo and everything, but yet you point out quite clearly that women are involved very, very strongly in these different concentric Absolutely. circles. Absolutely. So let me first pause and talk about the concentric circles a little bit. <laughs> sorry, yeah, Just we because, should do that. Yeah, sorry. But oh, no, I'm getting ahead of us uh, because I get so excited There's a lot of little, little bits of it that sort of fit together in the piece, I think. So I, I appreciate taking the time to set, kind of sort it out. So the concentric circles model helps us understand how the movement is organized and exactly why it's gotten so much purchase in our political mainstream. So the idea is that within the white power movement, you have a small group of activists in the middle, in the bullseye of mm -hmm. the circle. And those are the people who live and breathe this movement. They go to church in the movement. They homeschool their kids with curricula in the movement. They are the people most likely to take radical action. They marry other activists. They pick each other up from the airport. They get their marital counseling. It's a contained sort of thing. Then outside of that is a bigger group of people who do things 
things like attend rallies, subscribe to newspapers, regularly participate, um, and send financial contributions. Then outside of that is a less dedicated group, but bigger. Um, and here are people who don't themselves subscribe to a newspaper, but they always read it when a friend hands it to them, things like that. Yeah. Now, so we have pretty good numbers for all of those circles in the 80s. I don't think we have numbers for those circles today. But what we what we do know is that we're now talking about also a bigger category, an outer circle. And out here is a much larger group of people who would never pick up a newspaper that says official newspaper of the Knights of the KKK, but who might agree with the ideas presented in that newspaper, especially if you don't mention the word clan or the word racist, and especially if those ideas mm -hmm. come to you from a trusted social source. So that concentric model does two things. It pushes ideas from the extreme center out into the mainstream of our politics. And this is why groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers can recruit in kind of more, more ambiguous but bigger circles like Stop the Steal. And it also pulls people who can be radicalized in toward the middle. Now, the place where women become particularly important is that a lot of this movement across those circles and a lot of the activity within happen through social relationships. Mm -hmm. You need women to run the homeschooling. You need women to do the outreach. If you think about the big sort of Congress of activists in the 1980s at Aryan Nations, the same meeting where these guys and people declared war on the federal government in 1983 and pioneered leaderless resistance, part of that meeting was a cross burning and a swastika burning and sermons and fiery speeches and a secret meeting to declare war. But part of that meeting was volleyball games and a big spaghetti dinner and personal ads and matchmaking. You need women to sort of make all of that social part happen. And that's what allows the whole thing to hang together as a social movement. So even in the present, when we see mostly male manifestations of this at Charlottesville or on January 6th, one of the questions we should be asking is where are the women? Because the answer is not usually that there are none, even if they're not marching down the street in uniform. The answer is usually that they're doing an equally important part of the work of maintaining this movement somewhere off camera. Yeah, and I think relatively recently we've seen a lot of these Aryan Nation educational curriculum educational curricula out there. There's the thing about how to make your child a good Nazi in the American Nazi Party, things like this. And it's very, very shocking to see how organized and professionally produced all that stuff is. Absolutely. And they've been doing that again since the 1980s, if not earlier. And actually women's homeschooling materials and other women's circulars are one of the ways that we can trace a continuity between the paramilitary mobilizations of the 1980s and what for a long time people thought was a different thing in the 1990s, which was the militia movement. Mm -hmm. It turns out that, you know, if we had a Venn diagram, the militia movement circle would be larger than the white power movement circle. But the white power movement is almost entirely inside that militia circle by, say, 1992. Yeah. And all of the weapons and people and manpower and organizing flow into the militias. So certainly we shouldn't treat them as discreet. But there is something that almost completely unites all these people, and it's not necessarily a, a an organizational model or anything. It's something called the Turner Diaries, which I didn't know about until reading your chapter. And this, you show how this has been around for well, forever, but has also united Timothy McVeigh with people all the way up to... Um, 
nowadays. I mean, I don't want to say necessarily that certain members of the House of Representatives are inculcating the Turner Diaries in their nightly reading, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting piece. And so let me preface this by saying that if if your listeners get excited about learning more about this, I encourage everyone not to go purchase this book because no, occasionally no, no, the no, money no. still goes back to white power groups and you know, you can find many an excellent PDF on the internet if you're so inclined. So the Turner Diaries is a utopian novel as imagined by the white power movement in which a white power group has waged war on the United States, carried out campaigns of genocide and terror, and eventually secured through nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons, not only an all-white country, but an all-white planet. It is the most dramatic and brutal vision of end game, I think that I've seen presented anywhere in this movement's papers. The Turner Diaries is also enormously popular. Um, so we see stacks of them turning up at different important moments within this movement. So the terrorist group, the order kept a stack of them in the bunkhouse for training um, in the Northwest. The white Patriot party handed them out in North Carolina. Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma city bomber um, famously carried it around and distributed it on the gun show circuit and also um, had a photocopied excerpt with him when he pulled the trigger on the bomb. So as soon as you read this book, you'll notice that this is not an important book because it's a super great novel. It is, in fact, a very bad book by many standards of literary uh, litmus test. But what it does is answer a crucial problem that faced these activists, which is how can a very small group of people hope to overthrow the most militant super state in world history or militarized, excuse me. In other words, the Turner Diaries calls this, how can a gnat hope to assassinate an elephant with the gnat being the white power movement and the elephant is the US military. And so what the Turner Diaries does is make it possible to imagine that a dedicated group of patriots can undertake asymmetrical warfare and mass casualty events and eventually come up with an all white world. That that's it's absolutely astounding and and there are other sort of versions of this basic idea. I mean as you say the plot is very lame and very predictable and it's it's not is not a good novel. It's you know but but I can imagine that it it people who read Ayn Rand might be attracted by it. People who read all sorts of other crazy things might be attracted by it. And as we know, fiction is often much more powerful than a standard political tract. Absolutely. And, you know, there's ways that the Turner Diaries, although not in quality, does match with a very popular genre of the time. It's it's not unlike The Handmaid's Tale in structure. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've taught it in my American Apocalypse class for this reason. Like a lot of people are interested in sort of a near collapse of civilization and how do we rebuild afterward in the late 1980s. So you can read it alongside people with much, much different politics like Atwood and Ursula Le Guin and others who kind of envision the the end of the world and the remaking of the world. And what it is, is sort of a way that the white power movement is trying to like use that cultural moment again for its own purposes. Okay, well, this is a very good place for us to take a break. Once we've, we've gotten to the point where we're talking about fiction novels and how influential they are, it's time for me. To, I'm reminded that my corporate overlords are insisted that we pay, insisting that we pay the bills, insisting that we pay the bills. So let's just take a break for an ad and we'll be back in a moment. 
Okay, Buzzkillers, we are back with Dr. Kathleen Ballou, who's the author of in The Insurrection Chapter in Myth America, the book that we've been highlighting for the past several weeks. And of course, this is, the, as I said at the very beginning of the show, this is the crowning episode in that series of, of shows, because I think really this is the chapter that we need to pay the most attention to in the United States because of, frankly, the, the danger involved. Now, before we went for a break, Dr. Ballou, you, you talked all about the, the idea of, of the lone wolf, the, the models of leaderless resistance, the concentric circles models. We end, ended up talking about the importance of this fictional book, The Turner Diaries. All of this really wraps up into destroying this myth of it's not who we are as Americans. Why is that a myth? The reason that this essay took the framing of confronting the idea of this is not who we are really came from just watching the January 6th news coverage, mm-hmm. where at first people expressed shock and hurt and then began to express the sense of outrage. This is not who we are. They can't do this. They can't seize an election. People can't storm the building. They can't They can't do this. This is not who we are. And I'm certainly not unique among historians and academics and pundits in in kind of pushing back on this and saying, this is in fact exactly who we are. Whether we're thinking about looking at the long, long argument in the United States between the, I always think of Hamilton cabinet battle too, about like, does the state exist to constrain the violence of the mob, which as we know in early American Texas, M-O-B-B-E, mm-hmm. or does the mob exist to constrain the tyranny of the state? Where exactly is sovereignty really going to be located? And if you study the history of vigilante violence in the United States, I think th- this sort of discourse, that tension between local rule, whether it's one person or a county or a a mob versus state rule is just, it's, it's this friction point that comes up over and over and over again. And when we add to that problem, organized paramilitary white power activists using the networks of disinformation that they have built assiduously over the last several decades in order to wage a show of force attack on the federal government and try to awaken others into race war. We're talking about trajectories that have long, deep histories and also, frankly, histories that we have to understand in order to to know what we're even looking at. It's one of these places where history can really shine the light and give us some way to grapple with this otherwise impossible news cycle that just seems to be an overflow of information. But it isn't just... I mean, your chapter isn't just a look at, at the history of this, although that is important. And we talk about lynching, and you talk about other types of vigilante violence, and they talk about how a lynching was supported by some, you know, by large groups of people in those locales. You also bring in current sociology and current political thinking on these things. So this isn't, if you will, if you pardon the expression, a lone historian out there saying, "Oh, no, this is this is what's happening." There are all these experts. Who have been saying this? What's hap- This is what's happening, and yet for some reason the American American consciousness seems to want to believe or rationalize away. Oh well, this really isn't us. This, and I, it it seems very very persistent and it's very very worrying. It is, and part of it is worrying because of the immediate sort of sociological pictures of what happened on January sixth. So the more we get the survey data 
the sort of demographic information about the people who were involved, the backstories, the more what I think experts watching that day knew to be true was confirmed over and over and over. In other words, we have now not just the history, but as you say, we have the sociology, we have now, you know, now there's a prosecutorial record of seditious conspiracy charges. We have evidence of active duty Marines being involved on the day of January 6th. We have some survey data about people supporting violence to uh, restore Trump to power, no matter whether he was reelected or not. And and it's sort of just uh, over and over reproving the same point, which is that there is a sizable group of people, and I think a growing group of people who are unhappy with the democratic process in one way or another and want to take action to change it. Now, the other really interesting thing for me to watch is that when I was writing Bring the War Home, these activists in the 80s did not think they could use mainstream politics. Now, sometimes they would run for office anyway, Mm -hmm. David Duke being a prominent example, although not the only one, to sort of spread the message and stage a PR campaign and, and get attention around it. But I think even David Duke would not at that time have said that he thought he could win. And I don't think that most activists in the white power movement thought that mainstream politics could ever answer their grievances. One person talked about the time for the ballot has passed. Now is time for the bullet. And they wanted things like, you know, restoring Jim Crow or a new slavery or minority rule practices, or, you know, they wanted things that were so out there that mainstream politics simply couldn't deliver. And that realization is what tipped these activists into declaring war on the government in the first place, because there was no political Mm -hmm. option. So what happens if there is a political option, as seems to be the case in the Trump years? I think that, and here I should just say, I'm now not speaking from my archive. I'm speaking as a historian who reads the newspaper. But my guess is that there is now going to be some division in the movement about whether we are, we, they are collectively pursuing race war, whether they are now interested in political power instead whether there is some kind of, I don't know, using bits of both strategy that takes them down a middle road. In either case, the way that the violence is now operational is not only domestic terrorism, mass casualty attacks, um, sabotage, power station attacks, community of color attacks, not only all of those things. And now we also have to worry about authoritarianism and fascism in a much different way, because now it's also about electoral systems and figuring out how to how to use the power system of the GOP to push people up. And we see staggering numbers of sitting politicians with, you know, financial and group ties to the Oath Keepers and other organizations. We see people running for office out of Proud Boys. And I, I don't think that's over, even though People have sort of talked about pushing back the red wave in the midterms. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's over because people are still getting elected to various kinds of office holding positions. And we saw politicians back away from condemning it. Some of them, like Lindsey Graham, condemned it at first and then backed away immediately after there was backlash, in his case, in an airport. Absolutely. But there are certain, frankly, Republican Congress people who have said, you know, tourist visit, all this kind of stuff. And it seems to me, you know, those are elected members of Congress. And if they're not in the, at the very least, in that outer concentric circle, they're they're very close. And that is extremely bothersome. Absolutely. And the other thing to think about is that we now have ideological 
fingerprints from the white power movement on our actual enacted policy. So another example that I look at at length in this piece is the immigration and border wall strategy under the Trump administration. Now, that was mostly pioneered by Stephen Miller, and others have written about this at length. The point of the policy was to disrupt families and hurt people so much that immigration would not look so attractive. So we have the policy itself as one piece of evidence. The other piece of evidence is that Miller was circulating a white power novel called Camp of the Saints, not just reading it and chatting about it, but sending it to Breitbart reporters and saying, this is the thing you should be talking about when you talk about immigration. Now, as a historian, I'm really careful about belief um, and sincerity because, you know, Perhaps Stephen Miller doesn't believe any of this. Stephen Miller is a Jewish person who grew up in California. Perhaps he thinks that the white power movement is horrible and he doesn't want any part of it. Who knows? But definitely he was knowingly circulating these materials for some reason. Could be because he agrees, could be because he saw it as a way to sort of whip up this movement in support of what he wanted, could be a useful ideological um, sort of framing that he thought he could work with on his own terms. I don't know. At the end of the day, I'm not sure it matters that much because Mm. what we have is an immigration policy that was in some way directly framed by an encounter with this white power text. Yeah, it's just it's just astounding. It just it's just beggars belief. And I think it's also part of a larger it's not who we are myth. When we think that when you see reactions to gun violence in particular in the United States and, you know, again, we, we, we chalk these things up to lone actors and things like that. And among other countries like us, this is who we are. You know, we're the only place that this yeah. these kinds of things happen. And yet we continue to delude ourselves. Yeah. And I think as far as gun violence, it's 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 exactly who we are. We've yeah. we've chosen this for ourselves in a lot of different ways. Now, I will also say, like. I'm not a person who thinks that all gun violence is the same or even that all mass shootings are the same. I think that we can acknowledge some varieties of category there um, much more than, say, um, there was just a big kind of graphic, uh, what would we call it, I guess, digital journalism story in The New York Times about kind of the emotive reasons for a, a number of different acts of mass violence. That's useful, but that mixes up acts of violence that are overtly political yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and those that are not. I think there's a big difference, for instance, between something like the Columbine shooting, which was not about white power politics, and something that is. And one difference is that there is a broader web of accountability when you're part of a social movement and part of an ideological frame. Mm. But I also think that both of these kinds of gun violence are direct challenges to the story we tell ourselves about what the American social fabric is um, and what kind of nation we are and what kind of promises we make ourselves about about life and safety and family and happiness and any number of other factors. So I think all of those are, are challenges to kind of our shared story. Well, if you don't mind me wrapping up this way, it seems that, you know, the one of the maybe the biggest message to come out of this book as a whole is that there are all these uh, ways in which we claim, though that's not us, voter fraud, uh, voter irregularities and ringing vote, the vote by electoral uh, governors is not us, you know, the, the things you've talked about are not us, and, and on and on and on. And it seems we have, there are 20 chapters in this book, it seems we have 20 major delusions we're carrying around as a culture. Probably more than that. <laughs> but I well, think, I'm sure more than that. Yeah, At least 20 I, that have historical roots we can sure. latch on to. 
Sure. And the one that I didn't even take up for this particular essay, but I I think some other authors get into is, well, it it doesn't matter. There are many of these that go around on Twitter. And I think all of the authors in this volume spend a lot of time on social media and, you know, have Mm. the historian um, breaking out in hives reaction as these things get parroted as our history, quote unquote, over and over again. And, you know, it's, it's not simply a matter of taking apart the myths, although I think, of course, that's the title of this volume and that's a lot of the work we're doing. I think it's also about clearing space for an articulation of who we are together that has Mm -hmm. more capacity for the kinds of social change that we need. And I always think about how, you know, make America great again is a historical argument that that has an argument in it about who is America was it great? When was it great? Can it be great again? It has time in it. It has change over time in it. I mean, historians should be all over this argument. So I think mm-hmm. this book is sort of a step towards framing out that conversation so that so that we might have a more capacious idea about what our history can teach us for the future. Well, Professor, I can't imagine a better summing up of the importance and the, and the purpose of the book than that. So it just remains for me to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me, and thanks for doing the podcast. Buzzkillers, you know the book is on the Buzzkill bookshelf. Please go to the blog post for this episode and get it. Please go to Professor Buzzkill and do everything you need to do there. Look at old episodes, support us on Patreon, rate and review us on Apple Apple Podcasts and all those other things. So thanks again, Dr. Ballou, and to everyone out there listening, we will talk to all of you next week.